0: Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz. I want to welcome all of our viewers. If you are joining us for the first time tonight, and want more information about our show, as always, please visit our website at deadtalklive.com. I want to welcome our viewers tonight. Of course, we have our moderators. Ce- Sorry, we got Singer Chick and Khaleesi. We also have Cece Weezy joining us on the YouTube side. We've got Lindsay with us on Facebook. Chris is with us on Instagram. Uh, let's see, Jupiter is also with us. Philippe is with us. Uh, I see all the names coming in and I love the floating love hearts. Uh, welcome to everybody on Instagram. Welcome to everybody on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, and Twitter. I hope you're all enjoying your evening or your the morning wherever you're located. Uh, Lindsay. Always likes to remind us that she is from Canada. Uh, Philip is with us. Sammy is also with us from the very cold state of Montana. Anyway, like I said, I hope everyone is doing well tonight. And let's just get right into it. Oh, before we do, uh, I got an announcement to make. We are going to have a special guest this coming Monday. It's a last-minute interview that I was able to put together. And it's from the movie that I've been talking a lot about this past week, Followed, the star of the movie, Matthew Solomon, is going to be our guest Monday night. Now, I know a lot of you have not watched that movie, Follow. It's available on the uh, streaming demand service of your choice, except Netflix. Uh, I know it comes, if any of you have amazon prime it's included with amazon prime for free uh i highly recommend you guys watch that movie and join us monday night for the interview the star of the movie who uh went by the name on in the movie mike sorry uh dropped the mic almost forgot his uh, character's name he has a youtube channel and i've discussed this earlier this week he's all out to get subscribers takes a dare to stay at one of the most haunted hotels in Los Angeles and things unravel as you can imagine they do in any kind of horror movie with that kind of background. Things go really really wrong and it's scary. It's got its share of uh, jump scares. It's got a good story. It is a footage film. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of shaky camera, but we're used to that by now. It's a good story, and like I've said throughout this whole week, and I'm going to say it again, you don't need to have a lot of money to make a good movie. You need good story, good acting, and Followed has all of that. So I hope you guys watch the movie over this weekend if you haven't watched it already. And join us Monday night. Matthew Solomon, the star of Followed, is going to be our guest. Looking, very much looking forward to that for this coming Monday. So, let's go ahead and jump right into things today. How old do you guys think Beth was when uh, Dawn blew her head off? Any guesses? Uh, I haven't read this article, so I, I have no idea. Any guess would be that. It would be a guess. Nobody really knows. The answer to how old Beth was when she met her demise at the hands of uh, Dawn on The Walking Dead. Khaleesi says twenty-two. Lisa on Facebook writes eighteen. I'm um, you know, CC nineteen. That's where I'm guessing. I'm guessing nineteen, maybe twenty. You know, you know, when we met her at season two, she was a teenager, no doubt about that. No, Colette, she was much older than 16. She was older than 16. She was at least 18. I'm thinking maybe 19 or 20, but let's see what this article has to say. I'd love to hear their assumptions. And if they do come up with a number, I'd love to find out how they came up with that number beth green never had a chance to reach adulthood since the character was killed off when she was still a teenager in the walking dead season five poor beth green never had a chance i hate when they do that and then repeat the damn sentence uh she died in season five episode eight named coda played by emily kinney beth made her series debut in season two as the youngest daughter of Herschel Green. She appeared in a total of three seasons before she was tragically killed by the leader of a group residing in an Atlanta hospital. So how old was Beth during her arc on The Walking Dead? Beth made her first appearance in season two titled Bloodletting. Rick Grimes arrived at the Green family farm In search for help for his son, Carl, who had just been shot, Beth was one of the residents that assisted in saving Carl along with her older half-sister, Maggie. That's right, half-sister. At first, Beth struggled with the truth regarding the zombie apocalypse, and she even attempted to commit suicide with Andrea's help. In time, though, she emerged as a key member of the group, especially as she served as a caregiver while staying in the abandoned prison. After bonding with Daryl Dixon, Beth gained a new outlook, but her life was cut short after she became trapped in Grady Memorial Hospital. According to The Walking Dead, who on The Walking Dead? beth was sixteen years old when kinney made her series debut as a teenager who was focused on high school before the outbreak it was understandable that beth struggled with the new world she was still young to cope but old enough to remember what life used to be like though the series didn't acknowledge her date of birth the timeline of the show made it possible to figure out a date range oh god here we go based on the fact that season two was set to take place in october 2010 it would be plausible to track beth's birthday to somewhere between late 1993 to mid 1994 you guys buying this are you buying this all right, let's continue. Beth was 17 years old when she died in The Walking Dead Season 5. So only a year passed from when we met her, the whole governor, prison, all the crap they went through in Seasons 3, 4, and when she finally died. You're telling me that a year only one year passed. In season three, the timeline of The Walking Dead shifted to June 2011 after some time had passed. June! I would love to find out how they got that day, that month from. Walkers had infiltrated the Green family farm, overrunning the property, which in turn forced the survivors to scatter. Once they reunited, Rick led them around the area until they wound up in an abandoned prison nearby. During the time Rick's group lived in the prison, Beth was 17. Even though only a short time came and went, she was forced to grow up fast. Not only did she become one of the primary caregivers to baby Judith, she also witnessed the death of her father, which took place in Season 4. Beth was kidnapped by the police force in charge of Grady Memorial Hospital, heading into the events of The Walking Dead Season 5. While being kept against her will, she struck up a friendship with a fellow hostage who we know as Noah. When Carol Pelletier was taken to the hospital after a botched rescue attempt, The rest of the survivors, led by Rick and Daryl, tried to bargain for Beth's release. The exchange almost went through without a hitch, but after Noah was denied permission to leave, Beth attacked the hospital leader, Dong. Not a very smart move. The police officer was shocked at being stabbed in the shoulder by Beth and shot her in the head on reflex killing her instantly. The episode was set in late 2011, presumably December. They're just pulling months and dates out of their ass, which would bring Beth's age to the later months of 17. Depending on her birth month, there was also a chance she reached 18. Just a chance. During her death, if she was still alive in The Walking Dead now, Beth would be around the age of 26. Wow, what do you guys think about that? I think that's a bag of horse shit right there. (laughs) I really do. I think that whole thing is just horse shit. June? December? Where are they pulling these... Where are they getting these months from? It's purely... It's pure speculation at, the, at its best. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Here I am trying to come up with um, interesting articles to post on our new site. All they're doing is just, just coming up with stuff. That's all you got to do is just come up with stuff. Put it, you know, type it on, uh, on a post and hit the submit button and bam. And this is Screen brand too. That's why, uh, Weezy Wheezy writes, that's why her wrist and head were all banged up when she woke up in the hospital. Khaleesi agrees. It doesn't make any sense at all, and it really doesn't. Um, anyway, let's move on. Can horror TV shows be as scary as horror movies? Absolutely. While horror TV shows are not new, they still seem to be having a hard time Producing memorable chills like their movie counterparts can. Okay, I guess it's going to be just one of those days, guys. Uh, like Like I keep saying, I don't read these ahead of time. So, it's just going to be one of those days. It must have been a really slow news day. These people doing the writing cannot think of anything better to write. So they're coming up with stuff, and they're pulling it, like I said earlier, they're they're pulling this stuff right out of their ass. Uh, How many of you guys out there agree that TV is not as scary as movies? I mean, we have seen some stuff, uh, let's see, on The Walking Dead, and scary doesn't mean, oh my God, you know, I'm afraid to go to bed, I'm afraid to turn the lights off at night. It means disturbing. That's what it means for me. It's disturbing. And you're telling me shows like The Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, American Horror Story, uh, don't live up to the hype to their movie counterparts? Come on. I mean, really? Seriously? Hannibal. That's a great one, Khaleesi. Uh, That's exactly right. Hannibal. Talk about some disturbing shit. And let's get into like some of the cable shows. Penny Dreadful. I don't know how many of you guys have watched Penny Dreadful. I loved Penny Dreadful. Uh, Outcast. There were Both those shows were on Showtime. Anyway, let's see what they have to say. Uh, Michael Caine once said in an interview, comedy is harder to do than drama. You can make anyone burst into tears, but trying to get a laugh is murder. If that's the case, then how much more murderously difficult is it to make someone afraid? The horror genre is filled with bad examples of itself, and horror TV shows are no different. It remains a a popular genre, though, because when the result is good, it makes for a truly memorable experience even established actors like Tom Holland want to get involved with this genre that format seems to have stacked deck against it sorry it seems to have a stacked deck against it in particular which makes it harder for horror tv series to be as scary as the horror movie what sort of tribulations are out there for budding horror shows. Fear of the unknown. An important aspect of a plot. Is the rate at which the viewer is given new information. The more the viewer knows about what's going on. The less mystery there is. And the, view, and the viewer usually knows all. Of the relevant information by the time things wrap up. When it comes to horror. Horror. The mystery is a large part of the fear factor. Just as people can be afraid of the dark because they don't know what's lurking in it, the horror genre makes us makes use of the lack of information to scare the viewer. It's why the monster, or killer, isn't revealed until the very end. That is all well and good with a horror movie, but a horror show... By the end of the first season, the viewers need something to work with. How does the show balance this need to reveal information about the evil entity while also leaving enough mystery to keep things fresh for a next season? Reveal too little too late, and the viewers will wonder why they're even sticking around for. It explains why so many horror shows are anthologies or limited runs because it allows for a fresh start and a fresh new horror with each new season without sacrificing the pacing necessary to keep things frightening. Reveal too much too early and the show loses its edge. However, with each season bringing a new type of scare that cancels out any momentum that might have been gained, from the previous seasons a lot of shows hit their stride when all of the conceits of the show have been well established and the characters finally get the opportunity to bounce off bounce off of each other and the world around them anthology shows have had varying critical receptions to different seasons american horror story has been very hot and cold throughout its various arcs. And True Detective has pretty much been hot followed by a very long cold spell. The next thing on their list, this is fascinating to, you know, get behind this writer's thinking here. Shock and awe. For the horror genre, Suspicion of Disbelief... Sorry. Suspension of Disbelief is perhaps the most critical element. The scare doesn't work if the premise doesn't work. And the premise only works if the viewer is able to become successfully engrossed in the world of the fiction without having to think too hard on the logical inconsistencies. And that's where we have the problem with a lot of viewers out there who try to break down a show frame by frame, and point out plot holes. You gotta put, you know, you gotta live in a little, like they say, a state of disbelief to fully enjoy. This doesn't just apply to horror, to anything you're watching on TV or in the movies. If they're too busy asking questions about everything, then they're not in the right headspace to be scared. Horror also has an element of shock to it. Can a, show re- can a show remain shocking if its overall runtime is longer than that of a standard horror movie? That gives viewers enough time to not only become used to the going-ons of the show, but if the episodes are debuted weekly, this also gives viewers more time to mentally unpack everything that is happening. With more time to think on the show, any plot elements can be deconstructed, the suspension of disbelief may start to falter, and the shock factor may dissipate. Movies having the advantage the viewers are in a sense flying by the seat of their pants as events unfold, even if the movie is more of a slow burn, not really having any time to think about what's happened on screen until after the movie is already over. Oh, boy. Let's see. This is one more. I think this is the last topic. Uh, I'm getting bored of this article. On the chopping block, if a horror show opts not to go the anthology route, it has yet another issue to grapple with. What to do with its main cast? Well, you start killing them off and replace them. When it comes to horror, the characters almost invariably find themselves... In mortal danger, it helps to have a solid cast of characters for viewers to become attached to. Like with the miniseries The Stands, uh, Trash Can Man. But the anxiety about their well-being can be blunted if they seem to be too impervious to the dangers they face each episode. I don't think that's a problem our characters on The Walking Dead have to face. How do the showrunners straddle the need to have engaging characters viewers will like while also making them feel appropriately squeamish? If people keep dying around the main characters, it can feel like all of the ancillary characters are just there to fill the role that Ensign's wearing red shirts did on the original Star Trek. They get introduced so they can be killed off later while Kirk, Spock, and McCoy gallivant around exotic planets having sex with aliens they meet. And I think that's a good spot to stop reading this article. Uh, I get their point. I don't agree with it. For me, horror is not about getting scared. For me, horror... And please... If you disagree with it, feel free to speak up. It's the shock factor. It's the disturbing part of it. I've been watching horror movies since I was five years old. The only subgenre of horror that still gets me a little scared is the paranormal, because I believe in it. And I still love watching it, because it's the, like I said, it's the one thing that... Uh, can still get me scared. Even though in paranormal movies you've seen it a million times, I love watching movies where the door opens and closes mysteriously. I mean, that's a cliché. We talked about horror clichés a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, the doors opening and closing, the knocks and bangs on the walls, the disembodied voices... uh, it's all horror, paranormal, cliche. It's been really done to death, but I I personally still enjoy watching it. It makes it fun for me. It gives me entertainment. But when it comes to horror, it's about the disturbing factor. You know? That's why I really put Game of Thrones in... If I had to pick a category, a lot of people call game of thrones a drama i put it into like the horror category more than i would drama it's like a horror drama just like the walking dead i mean i think game of thrones and the walking dead are more similar than people realize they're about the characters in the walking dead It's the dangers that they face day in and day out from the dead all around them, even though the biggest dangers come from the living. Not that different on Game of Thrones. Uh, You gotta watch your back because everyone's out to kill you or backstab you. And we have seen some pretty disturbing stuff on both shows. Of course on The Walking Dead, it was the death of Abraham and Glenn. That's probably number one on everyone's list. On Game of Thrones there's a lot on the list. The the red, I don't know how many Game of Thrones viewers we have watching. You know, the red wedding. Uh, seeing a pregnant woman purposely get stabbed in the stomach before she's actually killed. I mean how f- fucked up is that? Excuse my language, but how fucked up is that to go up to Uh, You know you're going to assassinate these people, but you go up to a pregnant woman and you stab her repeatedly in her belly to let her know that her baby is dead before killing her. That's just freaking messed up. (laughs) So, yeah, to me, that's horror. To me, that is disturbing. Colette writes, that was Horrible. Khaleesi writes, the red wedding, purple wedding, it was, it was a screwed up wedding, any way you look at it. And, uh, all because, uh, Mr. Frey felt a little betrayed. But it's okay. Arya got the last laugh on that one. I loved how she, uh, took out her revenge on good old, uh, Frey there. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on to the next thing. Uh, you know, just thinking about Arya, who here agrees with me, if you're a Game of Thrones fans, that Arya is probably the, probably the biggest badass character on that show. How many times did she come in and actually save the day? That, that kid had some spunk, you know? She's like the equivalent of, uh, Judith Grimes on The Walking Dead, just, uh, older, just older. Lisa agrees with that as well. Alright, the 12 best character arcs in The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead has uh, seen many fantastic characters come and go, whether a hardened survivor or a vengeful bad guy. The hit zombie epic has featured some of the greatest character arcs on TV, and despite its longevity, keeps finding ways to add new key players and further develop the more long-standing figures on the show. Now, this article right here, just in that first paragraph, completely contradicts the previous article. The Walking Dead is set to air its 11th and final season later this year, bringing the show to an end in 2022. Now, then seems like a good time to remember Some of the journeys that the show has created within the show, fans have met everyone from lone survivors who learned how to lead, eccentric community leaders who slowly began to lose their faith in a happy ending, timid housewives who adapted quickly to the new world in order to survive, and twisted antagonists who have never been really easy to read. With that in mind, here are the 12 best character arcs that The Walking Dead has ever graced us with. Let's see who they put on their list. Ezekiel comes in as number 12, the kingdom leader, was always one of the oddest characters on The Walking Dead. He spoke as if he lived in a Shakespeare play and called himself king, leading his close-knit community as if it were a medieval village. Under the eccentricities, though, there proved to be a normal man, deeply changed by the new world. Ezekiel was jovial, a great leader and motivator, who formed a bond with Carol and refused to see the world in an overly negative, pessimistic way. During the war against Negan, his confidence began to waver, and he slipped into depression until Carol and Rick came along and brought him back to reality. The reason why he slipped into that depression is because in a matter of a few seconds, he lost his entire army. Very soon after, he gave his Yet I Smile speech, that famous speech that did not end so well for him. Number 11, Aaron. I love Aaron's character arc. I mean, just look at him in this picture and then remember what he looked like when we first met him. He looked like a preppy boy in right in the middle of the zombie apocalypse. You know, khakis, button-up shirt, clean-shaven, ready to go to prep school. <laughs> he was a preppy. Look at him now. And uh, that's a bona fide badass that we see right there on the screen. Uh, <laughs> one of The Walking Dead's most underrated main characters, Aaron came into the show during its fifth season unprepared for the harsh reality of life outside his community. Alexandria, and as of yet, unbent and unbroken by the world around him, he was responsible for bringing Rick Darrell... Rick, Daryl, Maggie, and the rest of the group to Alexandria. As the show progressed, Aaron became a core member of the main gang and formed an unlikely friendship with Daryl. He learned how to fight and face the outside world. During the war against Negan, he was forced to watch his boyfriend, Eric, die. From there, Aaron started to go quite dark. Yeah, and uh I think his character arc as this show progressive progresses, it's going to continue to get darker and darker for Aaron. 10. Oh boy. I'm surprised they didn't put him at number 1. Morgan Jones. Though it's fair to say that Morgan Jones had his arc milked half to death over his sporadic ...tenure on The Walking Dead, there's no denying at its core his was a deep and complex story. He was first encountered in the first ever episode, saving Rick from walkers and filling him in about the end of the world. He appeared again in Season 3, having lost his mind following the death of his son Duane, having built a fortress in the middle of a town... He was found once more by Rick, who left him behind when Morgan refused to take part in Rick's war against the governor. Later, having learned from a man called Eastman that all life is precious and killing is never justified, he headed out to find Rick. That's after Eastman had passed away. I wonder if Eastman never died does Morgan ever leave Eastman to go out and find Rick? You you gotta wonder. Or do they both, you know, develop some very deep romance and end up just being best of friends and living out the rest of their days in Eastman's house? Who the hell knows? Uh, CC writes, Aaron is tough. I really like his character, as do I. Welcome to Crazy Dutchman on YouTube. Do we have any date of the new season's release? Yes. Uh, the six bonus episodes are going to start on February 28th. 20, uh, that's what? Today's the 4th? So, it's like 24 days away. In 24 days, we get the start of the bonus episodes. So, there you go. That's your date. Number 9, Eugene Porter. Eugene has always been a lot to take, but even his detractors have to admit that his character arc has been quite spectacular. When he arrived in Season 4, he was arrogant, annoying, and a bit too strange to be endearing. It didn't help that he was a coward, a trait that occasionally makes characters on The Walking Dead likable, but with Eugene, it just grated. His arc was slow, and he was a liar. He lied to everybody to, to save his own ass, basically. He joined the saviors to save his own ass. He always went with the best option that would keep him alive. But, you know, when it was time to make that tough decision, he made it. And he's the one that won all-out war for the communities. If it wasn't for him, there would not be any more any Alexandria or Hilltop. They would all be dead. They would have all been massacred out in that field. Number eight, Michonne. Michonne has had quite a messy, usually tragic arc on the show. She turned up at the end of season two, saving Andrea from a grisly fate, and during season three formed a major rivalry with the governor that forced her to join ranks with Rick, Daryl, and the survivors at the prison. It took a while, but after forming a close bond with Carl, she became a key part of the group. After losing Andrea Herschel and then the prison to the governor's quest for vengeance, it looked as though Michonne would resort to her life. Sorry, it looked like Michonne would resort to her life before she found Rick. That makes no sense. It looked as though Michonne would resort to her life before she found Rick. Am I just reading that? Am I just not getting it tonight? Anyway, refusing to form attachments, but, uh, but she came around and helped the group get back together as they made their way to Alexandria. No doubt about it. Michonne definitely has had quite an arc. And, you know, how badass is this picture? She's about eight, nine months pregnant there, and she's still taking him down with her sword. Next on the list, number seven, Carl Grimes, whose time on the show was cut way too short. Before being unceremoniously killed off in the middle of season eight from a lowly walker bite. no less, Carl had shaped up to be one of the show's most low-key compelling characters. He started the show as a young, naive son of Rick and Lori Grimes, and though the first few seasons lost his, uh, his brief mentor Shane Walsh and was forced to shoot his own mother. From season 4 onward, Carl became a straight-up badass. He was still a bit sloppy and his optimism and belief in people often came across as dangerously naive given the circumstances, but all told, Carl came to represent something no other character did the possibility of a good future and a safe life. Which is how it worked out for Carl in the comic books. That's not how it's going to work out for Carl in the TV show. Alright, number six, Negan. You see, we don't know, we only know half of Negan's arc. He's still in the middle of his arc to put him on this list. I'm not saying he won't, By the time the show ends, uh, at the end of next year, that he will definitely deserve a spot on this list. But right now, Negan is still in the middle of his arc. We haven't yet found out, we will very soon, uh, where he was at the beginning of the apocalypse. We don't know how his character is going to proceed moving forward. Is he going to end up getting exiled like he did in the comic books? Is he going to become the leader of Alexandria like I predict? We still don't know, but he's on the list no less. The most iconic villain on the show, the joy of seeing Negan's story play out, is realizing there's a lot more to him than his antagonistic nature. Though he undoubtedly has more than a few screws loose, Following All Out War storyline, it became increasingly clear that he's more than meets the eye. When we first meet Negan, it's fair to say he makes an impression, killing Glenn and Abraham in front of their friends and family, before emotionally breaking the hardest characters on the show, including Rick and Daryl. And you know what? Negan never broke Daryl. He broke Rick. But Negan never broke Daryl. He tried. You know, he put Dwight on that task. Daryl ended up breaking Dwight. But, nope. I don't think... Nobody's ever broken Daryl. There's not been a single person. But make no doubt about it. Negan did break Rick. In that same episode... uh, Where the where Abraham and Glenn died. CC writes, I think Negan will get exiled. No way Maggie will stay around with little Herschel. Rowena on Facebook writes, I hate Negan when he killed Glenn. Oh, you weren't alone with that. You weren't alone with that sentiment. Uh, So he deserves a spot on this list. Just not yet. His, His arc is still unfolding. Number five, Maggie Green. Maggie Green's arc occasionally felt a little slow in the midpoint of the show, falling into a sweet but doomed relationship with Glenn. She was often sidelined in the show's biggest moments. That being said, she still had some wonderful subplots in which she emerged as one of the best leaders in the series. Before witnessing her husband be bludgeoned to death by Negan, Maggie also endured the loss of her father, sister, and all her friends at the old family farm. She was nearly assaulted by the governor, fell pregnant, and as a single mother in the apocalypse, powered through the ranks to become the leader of Hilltop. And she's been through a lot more. Don't forget that interrogation that the governor put her through when the governor captured both Maggie and Glenn. Uh, I mean, we all know the governor was wicked evil. And remember how he made Glenn believe that his wife had been raped? Uh, That's how twisted and evil that dude was. All right, number four, Gabriel. Definitely deserves a spot on this list. I don't know how long Gabriel is uh, long for this show. He might make it all the way to the end. Uh, We have seen some pictures from trailers and uh that they've released uh it looks like gabriel as this show is going to progress is also going to go the same way aaron is going to go and that is go deeper into that dark place uh he he becomes really cold-hearted it all really started to change for him when sadiq got killed and gabriel is the one that killed dante One of the biggest characters left on the show, Gabriel Stokes, has had an arc so deep and compelling, it's crazy to remember he was once a cowardly, selfish priest who let his parish die at the start of the apocalypse. Found by Rick and the group in season 5, he was weak, naive, and pathetic, but slowly began to have one of the show's best ever arcs. As the show wore on after his introduction, he betrayed and recon- reconciled with Rick, questioned his faith, lost his sight, and proved his worth by protecting Judith during the Walker invasion of Alexandria in Season 6. During the war with Negan, he formed an interesting relationship with the Savior's leader, and after the war became a key figure in the, as, in the leadership of, of Alexandria as he became head of the council. All right, we're getting to the top. All right. Number three, Rick Grimes. Who do you think is going to be number one? It's either going to be Carol or Daryl. Carol and Daryl are two and one, I guarantee you. Number two and one, I don't know who's going to be one. I don't know who's going to be number two, but I think it's definitely going to be, you know, Daryl and Carol. C.C. writes, it was a scene in Season 8 where it showed Gabriel comic death when Rick had convinced the garbage people to join him and they went to the sanctuary. It was a guy hanging from a tower dressed like Gabe. Oh, I remember that. That's when Rick and the scavengers go uh, to the sanctuary because Rick had told them he had them surrounded. And that's when Rick found out that they had escaped. The main man himself, in a lot of ways Rick Grimes, has had the most conventional character arc on the show, but that doesn't make it any less impressive. He started the show waking from a coma, unaware of what's happened and desperate to find his family. He was moral, clean-cut, and hopeful. After finding his family, though, this began to change. His best friend Shane began to slip into madness. Rick started to question his relationships and his moral code, which ended in him killing Shane. Later, Lori died giving birth to Shane's baby, and Rick became unhinged. Though he eventually came back from the brink, these events forever changed him. And I think one of the biggest changes Rick Grimes went through in his arc is Terminus. Terminus was not a very long story, them actually being at Terminus. It was took up a, a whole half season, them getting to Terminus, but once they got there, and the downfall of Terminus, and the downfall of Gareth soon after, that was a huge pivot moment for Rick. It really made him any kind of moral code he had that's when it left not when he killed shane it's when he saw what people were capable of doing at terminus that's what killed any last of morality that rick grimes had many of his leadership decisions did not pay off but he still kept the group together through their planes and after battling the governor being kidnapped by cannibals And losing faith and trust in humanity, he managed to stop himself from completely cracking under the pressure of the new world and brought numerous communities together for a more peaceful future. And he did that to honor his dead son, because that's what Carl wanted him to do in the infamous Carl Carl Grimes letters. Okay, I called it. Number two, Carol. That means Daryl is going to be number one. And if it's anybody else, it's going to shock the shit out of me. If you were to look up the word tragic in the dictionary, chances are you are going to find a picture of Carol. At first, Carol seemed to be the ultimate background character, an abused woman who was far from ready for the threats the New World posed. After the death of her husband, she lost her daughter, Sophia, and began to toughen up, forming a sweet, everlasting bond with Daryl Dixon. She started to do whatever was necessary for the survival of herself and her friends. She bottled up her feelings, took bold actions to stop impending disaster at the prison. They're talking about her murdering uh, Karen and eventually found herself exiled from the group. When she reconciled with them, Carol was more capable and badass than ever. Over the next few seasons, her bond with Daryl grew stronger, but she began to question herself and ran away from the group. And now, here we are, in between seasons 10 and 11, and... There are big question marks in regards to the relationship between Carol and Daryl. As I've reread earlier in the summer, according to Angela Kang, the showrunner, things are going to get worse between those two before they start to get better. So let's see it. Number one, Daryl Dixon. Here we go. We called it. Outside of perhaps Rick, Daryl Dixon is probably... The character most fans picture when thinking about the show. I don't know about that. uh, I think it's Rick. In my opinion, it's Rick. Uh, Even with Rick being gone. When people think of The Walking Dead, I'm sorry. If I had to pick, I I would say most people just Rick Grimes flashes into their mind. And then Daryl very quickly afterwards with his iconic crossbow and lone wolf mentality the adept survivalist seemed to be the only one really prepared for the apocalypse before it actually came to pass in the first season he was violent and temperamental and devoted to his older brother merle after merle disappeared Daryl found himself become a vital member of the original Atlanta group but in season 3 found his brother and had to choose between him and Rick. He initially chose Merle but returned to the group when he realized that's where he wanted to be. After the death of his brother, Daryl became Rick's right-hand man and closest friend throughout the rest of the show. There were moments when Daryl's story grew a bit slow and forced, but over the last couple of seasons, he has emerged as the show's best character once more. Now a leader and a father figure to Judith and Lydia, he has become the show's main character and its most consistent. Tough, tragic, beaten down, but unbroken. And I mentioned that. Daryl has never had anybody break him on The Walking Dead. Daryl has been through it all, but always finds a way to come back better and stronger than ever. It doesn't get any better than that. And that was actually quite an enjoyable list. Uh, I enjoyed reading that. That was actually a lot of fun. Uh... You know, my only qualms was with uh, Negan. He deserves a spot. He will have a spot on that list, but we have not even, not even halfway through Negan's arc to really find out where he's going to go. And we still don't have a clue as to how he came to be, but we're going to find that out very soon. Anyway, in the little bit of time that we have left, we're going to be talking about ghost hunting movies today. More accurately, documentaries. I want to kind of move away from the movie bit for a way and let's talk about some quote unquote real documentaries. So I got to, I, got, I found this list uh, on Watch Mojo. Watch Mojo really has some good stuff on their YouTube channel. You guys, if you haven't checked them out, you should check them out. They put together a list of, the, of some of the top paranormal documentaries. Uh, we are talking about ghost hunting. I was reading your chats uh, shortly before I went live. In Singer Chick, I saw the comment that you wrote that you actually did a bit of ghost hunting in the past. That is not something I want to do. I fully believe in the paranormal, but I don't want to experience it. It's not something I need to see or feel to believe. With that said, let's go ahead and check out this Watch Mojo video, which will come up right now.
1: Even if you don't believe in the paranormal, there's no denying that these programs are highly entertaining. Shit. Welcome to WatchMojo.com, and today we're counting down our picks for the Top 10 Scariest Paranormal Documentary Shows. Before we begin, we publish new videos every day, so be sure to subscribe for more great content. For this list, we're looking at the scariest shows regarding the paranormal, which can include anything from aliens to ghosts to unexplained phenomena. However, shows like Unsolved Mysteries won't be included as those programs largely focus on realistic mysteries and crimes rather than the paranormal, despite having a number of segments devoted to the subject.
0: I gotta say real quick before we continue, uh, UFOs, aliens, extraterrestrials, that is something uh, I'm not sold on. I'm sorry, I'm not, okay? For me, when I talk about paranormal, it's about what happens after you die. Even though, yeah, uh, the term paranormal has a big umbrella and it covers a lot of uh, stuff. But for me, it strictly means the afterlife. I have no interest. I do not like uh, movies about extraterrestrials. Uh, The one movie about aliens and extraterrestrials that I did like is The Fourth Kind with Mila Javavich. That's another movie that they tried tricking you to believing was real events that wasn't. But I, if you haven't watched it, it's really entertaining. Alright, let's continue with this.
1: Number 10, Haunted Collector.
0: Oh dude. What is that?
1: In the oversaturated market that is ghost hunting, Haunted Collector takes an original approach to the genre. Like most ghost shows, Haunted Collector follows a demonologist, John Safis and his family, as they investigate supposed haunted locations. However, Zaphis takes it one step further by attempting to find and remove the location's trigger object. The item that a spirit has attached itself to, and which in turn, results in the haunting. Oh my god. Yeah, Jason, the water's running in here. Yep, the show is essentially a real-life Ghostbusters. Sure, it's a little odd seeing Zaphis talking to a lamp or another inanimate object, but at least it puts a fresh twist on the tired ghost hunting formula. Do I think it's paranormal? I wouldn't jump to that conclusion. Number nine, Paranormal Lockdown. Paranormal Lockdown is hosted by two veterans of the paranormal field, Ghost Adventures' Nick Groff and Paranormal States' Katrina Weidman. Despite a somewhat awkward chemistry, their experience makes for an informed and professional dynamic, as they tend to take a more thoughtful approach to their evidence rather than freaking out at the slightest provocation.
0: Are you attacking people?
1: Instead of one single night, the two spend 72 hours confined to a was location, part
0: of the original confinement uh, often ghost results in numerous pieces crew. of evidence. I don't know how However, many of watch Ghost Adventures in broad
1: daylight. With, uh, Paranormal Sonic Lockdown Baggins. is a raw, realistic, endless flashy of the original approach crew. to ghost hunting television.
0: He left the group to go off and do his own thing.
1: Number 8. Paranormal State. She's
0: had a spirit teller to cut herself. Something in the bathroom.
1: While most ghost shows follow professional paranormal investigators, Paranormal State centers around a university club called the Pennsylvania State University Paranormal Research Society. Since outlines That's of the awful. episodes were made in advance and the producers created story arcs for the students, naysayers may feel as if it's overproduced or even outright fake. However, regardless of your opinion on its authenticity and flair for the dramatic, there's no denying that there are numerous entertaining scares to be found. Just don't take it too seriously, and you may walk away a little unnerved.
0: What the hell was that? What happened Something just moved right next to me.
1: Number 7. Most Haunted If you want us to leave, then say, get out.
0: Maybe that was Get Out.
1: Most Haunted is undeniably one of the most popular and certainly one of the longest-running paranormal shows on television. It, it follows a team of investigators led by Yvette Fielding as they explore various haunted locations throughout Europe. While Most Haunted has been the subject of various controversies and claims of fakery, it's nevertheless a very spooky show and its age alone can certainly attest to its popularity. Can't see it. Don't let me go in here. The crew's reactions may be on the melodramatic side And it seems to be more of a ratings chaser than an authentic glimpse into the paranormal. But there is no denying that it still makes for entertaining and creepy television. (laughs) Number 6. A Haunting.
0: This has been on forever. A Haunting
1: is unlike the other shows of its kind, as it's more documentary than investigative. It tells the stories of various people who were seemingly afflicted by paranormal phenomena. And has dramatic reenactments play over commentary from witnesses. Because the show is more cinematic than realistic, the paranormal stories go down far easier, and the show is more easily digestible as entertainment. I walked into the room and the piano is playing by itself. The production is also far better than most shows that revolve around reenactments, as the effects are generally believable, and it's both well shot and well acted. Despite possible reservations regarding the stories, a haunting is nevertheless a terrifying glimpse into the unknown. Number five, Destination Truth.
0: Listen, buddy, I got two words for you: haunted forest. Hello?
1: Destination Truth followed paranormal researcher. we're not gonna have
0: time to finish this list. God, it's so sad. I've seen each and every. I watch each and every one of those shows. Like I said, I just I love the topic. I love the field. I love watching it. You know, I have some questions. I know it's not all real. And uh, you have the ones out there, the Ghost Hunters, that are uh, really melodramatic. They're really good at it. They all have their own style. Uh, At the end of the day, though, you got to make up your own mind, especially when it comes to these TV shows. These TV shows are there because they're popular. And it used to be here on a channel called Destination America. And they've all moved to its sister station. And there all these shows are on the Travel Channel in the United States right now. So if you're looking for paranormal stuff, just head on over to the Travel Channel. Anyway, guys, we are out of time for tonight. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome as always. Visit us at DeadTalkLive.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is called Dead Talk Live. I will be back on the air again tomorrow. Uh, A pleasure as always. And until tomorrow night, guys, remember, stay walking. Good night.